Hello and welcome to Always Take Notes. In this episode, we speak to Louisa Joyner, who is the editorial director at Faber & Faber. So Cassia and I met with Louisa at her offices in Bloomsbury, a very storied history there. And we discussed all sorts of things from her own entry into publishing via academia to where Faber sits in the market, and also how people from an academic background can have very different views on literary merit than those who come uh, through a more traditional publishing route. It was a great interview and we hope you enjoy it. Louisa, can you tell us um, initially a bit about your background and your your entry into publishing? Um, Absolutely. Uh, My background, I originally started in academia. I uh, did uh, my undergraduate degree and then went straight into a master's and straight onto a PhD, which brought me to London, where I worked with Lisa Jardine, who at that point was uh, about to become a man booker judge um, because she made no sense whatever as a supervisor. She was a renaissanceist. And I was writing about novels published after 1990, so I didn't understand <laughs> at all. I didn't apply to her. And she just rep- responded because she saw the pile and was like, that'll be interesting. Um, and it was incredible. It was um, uh, because what she wanted really was someone who, as part of her supervision, was reading everything that was happening in the current literary scene okay. as part of a background for her to begin to think because she was determined to change things up as a judge, which she really did. She was chair the year that uh, Life of Pi Right. One, which is still the most successful and uh, ever Booker winner, and she really was interested in kind of that debate about what makes a literary novel. Sure. Um, and so I worked, that interested me. I worked with her. I spent you know years in the British Library and had you know a tiny amount of money on which to live and read and read all day, which is the most incredible background for any part of publishing life, editing, being an author. It's so it's impossible to overstate the amount of um, uh, a gift to your future self, really reading deeply in an area you're interested in is. Um, And so, yeah, I read my way through an extraordinary number of novels and wrote a PhD, which is also... And did you finish it? I did finish it. I did finish it. Um, It's like locked in a cupboard. I've got sentences that last a paragraph. No one publishing can ever see it. (laughs) It's like a horrific piece of like cultural theory, which collapses under the weight of its own pretension. but it was a really good exercise in how hard it is, in fact, to write anything. Um, so I did finish it. And then um, at the end of it, I knew, really, I did a bit of teaching to survive, but I knew I didn't want to be in academia and had become completely fascinated by uh, the industry. Um, the, was that as a result of working sort of on the, the Booker Prize? It was a result of just being in a community of contemporary writers, because I think like loads of undergraduates, I basically assumed, I mean, I, I didn't grow up in London, I had no contact with the literary world, and for me, authors were sort of so revered, they were mainly in my head dead. Mm. You know, I didn't think of it as a kind of live and bustling Living industry, yeah. I had no relationship to that. So when I came to study and was working with Lisa, and with other professors in that department, mm. so Jacqueline Rose was there, who Faber now published, and... Um, Peggy Reynolds, who at that point was Jeanette Winston's partner and mm-hmm. was, you know, this incredibly um, uh, vivacious and kind of sparkling force in terms of uh, the crossover between the literary world and the academic world because mm-hmm. of her work. So it just suddenly became, I had access to a world that otherwise I had no sense of, let alone how to get into it. And in terms of that, you know, the crossover from academia, I mean, you, you mentioned that what kind of flies as academic writing is very different than what uh, what doesn't. Um, you know, we've talked to a number of editors, but I think none of them have done, have done a PhD route no, coming come in. Was it, how were you regarded within publishing coming from, from that world? I think 
It was a really interesting mixture of um, suspicion and I don't want to say reverence. There was a reverence for the work, as in the the endeavour, but I don't think anybody thought saw it as terrifically relevant necessarily to the industry. Those are two industries that are kind of mutually suspicious of one another because their terms don't work very well together. What What it meant for me in that, you know, the academics idea of what is a literary work, that's one book a decade going into the mm-hmm. canon. It's not what publishing defines it. I mean, all these terms are so roundly abused. And there's also that, like, is it the James Wood idea that, you know, the two things that academic literary criticism is so shy of, so intentionality and, like, any kind of qualitative judgment, mm-hmm. which are obsessionally important to, to writers and to publishers as well, mm-hmm. right? Um, but yeah, just that you're crossing that line, I suppose. Well, so what's what, and what's been really interesting for me and has been a signature of my work ever since is that you're either crossing the line or you just don't accept that the line is there mm. in the same way. And then I think, and what I found really liberating was that if you start from a position that one book every 10 years is going to make it into the canon, then you just can't worry about what is going on in Colin Waters Literary. And therefore, mm. the kind of, I was really fascinated at the beginning at these micro debates about Waters Literary and what's commercial that subsume publishers but that readers don't think about yeah. and the rest of the world doesn't think about and if you kind of come from a position where you just can't worry about it if you don't accept it as a split that can do really interesting things to your publishing so I think a lot of people to this day my publishing would be described as quite eclectic because I just don't mm. I'm not interested in that division yeah. um, so I think yeah and people yeah I think they were right, sort of suspicious of it um, they enjoyed deploying it. So the first job I had was at Atlantic, which is this little tiny independent, and the the then uh, publisher Toby Mundy, he'd done he'd done an MA with Lisa, so she introduced me to him. That was how that was how I got my entree. Because otherwise I wouldn't have, have known I could have written to people, I guess, and stuff, and I probably would have done. But she was kind enough to introduce us. Um, and yeah, and he thought it was hilarious that I was yeah he had a, a PhD on a minimum wage, like making coffee badly and answering the phone. Because I, st- I started as a proper intern. Um, and I still remember, it's such a signature thing for me, that sense of um, being on the reception desk. Well, actually, I was working as assistant, but also on reception, there were only like five of us. Um, and somebody rang to speak to uh, Toby, and they just said, oh, you know, I think I take a message. Went, oh, just tell him David rang and hung up. And I thought I was going to lose my job. I was like, I have no idea who that was. I don't know how to tell him who that was. And I hadn't fully understood that publishing then and to a degree now was so insular that if I said David in the right tone of voice perhaps not at all Toby would know who that was <laughs> and what they were calling him it just didn't make sense to me as an idea um, and that I remember being really struck by how this very liberal world this idea of sort of multiplicity that was at the same time inc- so insular it couldn't even see its own walls mm. was really really interesting I mean that's going back away that's the beginning of the 2000s I think I find that really uh, idea really fascinating um, of kind of working your way up from kind of um, an internship. Did you get the introduction specifically because by that stage you realised that it was an industry you wanted to work on and therefore you'd sort of started to voice that? Or, um, you know, was it just sort of, you know, you were looking for a job, any job? No, I wasn't looking for a job, any job. I knew I wanted to work mm-hmm. in publishing because I think as well I'd done quite a lot of that point of actually teaching about the mm. stuff I was interested in so I taught a bestsellers course with um, Sarah Churchwell at UEA and I was teaching contemporary fiction with Peggy Reynolds so mm. it was this fascinating you know running classes with students and you'd ask them to tell you what the colophon was on their books and none of them would know and these were people who were about to graduate with English mm. degrees and it's like you know this whole th- it's fascinating how meaningless 
publishing as an imprint or an idea mm. is to people who are passionate about books. Yeah. So I'd become really interested in that. And in fact, I'd written a couple of books. I'd written, so there was a series called Vintage Living Texts, which were academic guides to mm-hmm. uh, contemporary novelists. So I wrote the Toni Morrison Living Text Guide and I wrote it like literally mm-hmm. in my spare time to survive because the I was lucky enough to get a grant, but I think it was £8,000 a year. I mean, it was... Mm. It was not, it, I was doing things to survive. So I'd be, I sort of entered publishing via this, I'd begun to see bits of it from the outside by these strange angular roots. So I'd become by that point really interested. So it definitely wasn't speculative. I was still really lucky. And were you clear, if you were doing these writing projects as well, were you clear mm. that you wanted to be an editor or were you thinking about, about continuing in the writing vein? I didn't want to be an author. I don't think I could tell you honestly that I knew I wanted to be an editor because I still didn't really know enough about the industry to know exactly what the other roles were now I didn't know what a rights department did or how the actual sort of crunchy mechanic worked and the brilliant thing about being an independent is everybody's doing a bit of everything anyway so you're Mm. sort of getting a real sense of the business as a whole I mean as soon as I was there yes but in those first couple of weeks I remember going to see Toby and answer to your academic question the question about the relationship to academia and publishing for this first interview chatting for about 20 minutes and he asked me something about when my heart was in terms of um, novels as opposed to other works and I gave him some really long answer and he went so you like non-fiction as well as fiction I remember thinking god I've got to start speaking in shorter sentences <laughs> um, so it was a really amazing open I, I didn't have necessarily a totally clear idea and it sounds like he was kind of open to giving you opportunities did you find the um, sort of assistant and receptionist roles sticky or did you find it relatively easy to, to move up do you mean sticky in terms of uh, not being seen or not having... Not being seen and, and finding it difficult to move up once you've proven yourself very adept at, you know, painting I... and... <clears throat> yeah, I, I always find it a bit weird. I remember when I was sort of first dipping this world that you'd, you'd, like, go to a literary agent and the person on reception would have, like, a triple first. Yeah. <laughs> stuff like that. And you think, OK, you're, you're like, clerical class. It's, it's, it, we've talked about this quite a lot of people, and I think, you know, this idea that the, the way in is doing... Yeah. But but if, if it is the way in, I think exactly because what I mean sort of what my question was aimed at is how easy is it because I think these entry level jobs are often seen as being the way in, but then at some places they are, and some places you're you're there, you're stuck. I think I think that's quite uh, the answer to that isn't sort of simple in that um, it was it was the way in for me, but the company was tiny like mm. there were six of us so what everybody did was visible yeah. and it was a time of rapid growth mm. I had an idea for a book from a friend I knew at university who at that point was presenting Formula One and I went to mm. see Toby and was like she's a female presenter of Formula One and she's got this brilliant idea for a book called The Pits My Life in Formula One and it's kind of about being a female in a male sports world we commissioned it and published it I mean that was I, I you can't in a big if I just you know if I'd mm. gone and knocked on you know somebody on quote the fifth floor's office in a conglomerate and just said I've got an idea Mm. I think they would have not known where to look. It would have been interesting. Um, because though it, it's just not the same level of natural visibility. Yeah. Um, I think as well, publishing has had to learn to get better at recognising its own expertise. I think one of the things that really informs its own inaccessibility is not being clear about where its own value mm. lies. So I think sometimes it starts people at that level to, sort of as everybody's sort of in a kind of strange way working out with they fit um Mm. you can get stuck I think that can happen at every level you can get Mm -hmm. to a point where suddenly you feel that you're thwarted equally none of the admin goes away publishing is an industry where you end up unless you're at an extremely senior level even Mm. then less and less so um 
being an assistant to somebody can be a fantastic way to understanding mm. the business, but it depends, I would say, on the size of company entirely. And was your internship um, paid? And is that that's something that has obviously sort of been a big problem in a lot of these industries is unpaid internships? Um, now, I think it, I think it, if it was, it was like at a minimum wage mm. or less level because I had a conversation with an amazing colleague there about the fact I was applying after being there for a couple of months for completely random jobs. I went for a rights assistant in illustrated books at Transworld because mm. it was a job. And they were like, why are you doing it? And I was like, because I mm. don't know anybody in London and I have to pay my, like, it's, I'm not staying on a, at my auntie's. I'm not mm. connected. And I need to live and I just have to get a job. And then they, and then they, I was lucky enough that then Atlantic hired me at, on, as like a, a editorial assistant. Um, but it wasn't, it wouldn't have been enough to survive on. Um, it was I could do it for six weeks, having mm. run up to it and saved money, and then. But it, yeah. yeah. And could you talk us through your your progression from Atlantic to to where you are now? Your your rise to power. <laughs> it's been really wonky. Um, I'm was very it, was enjoyable. It oh God! Yeah, I don't. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> um, I was at Atlantic for seven years, and I worked up really quickly there from assistant editor, and I was editorial director there within five years so it happened fast mm. but the company was also growing at an incredible rate and changing and um it was going through a sort of uh, moment where it was going to be a different place there were huge ideas about growth this is around 2006 2007 as also mm. the economics of everything was really shifting um and i got persuaded into a totally totally uh, extraordinary job by somebody senior at random house um, I did this funny mixture of mainly quite literary or um, accessible literary fiction, but I also did some serious non-fiction. I did some big commercial mm. non-fiction. I kind of I like selling books in big numbers, and I like having ideas and commissioning non-fiction is a great way to explore that stuff. So I'd had I published a best-selling memoir by an ex um, EastEnders actress who was actually a, proper, a real a really interesting thespian that sold a quarter of a million copies for Atlantic. So we ended up in um, at Virgin. At Random House, which is so bizarre, which very quickly worked out was a very strange move. It meant to be part of, they bought the company as part of an idea of growing and changing it. At the time, the bottom fell out of travel. The idea was mm. they were going to create this amazing travel letter with Virgin. And Virgin owned Thames and Hudson. Um, Thames and Hudson. There was a literary imprint. It wasn't Thames and Hudson. Another literary imprint that Alan, I'm sorry, forgive me. They bought Virgin with the idea of resuscitating a literary imprint it already owned. Mm -hmm. But then it became clear that there was too much work to do just to get that business in shape. Um, so it was completely fascinating. It was like doing an MBA. Mm. It was working on books that I understood but weren't necessarily where my passion was. Um, and I was there for about 18 months and then had my first child and on maternity leave I was like, yeah, this is bonkers. I mean, I, I've really learned loads but this is not the natural place for me. So I went to HarperCollins. Mm -hmm. uh, I was um, covering initially a maternity leave but with a view to staying because at that point what they wanted to do was before they'd launched their Borough Press imprint and they wanted to publish at the most literary end of the spectrum for Harper Collins as opposed to Fourth Estate which was the more literary imprint but with the commercial heft of, of what that can do when it understands that a book can really fly um, and I did a couple of things there I published Nathan Filer which went on to in the Costa and kind of demonstrated what can happen when you put the commercial machine behind book that the literary establishment has embraced and I did this um series I did a number of things but I also did a series um uh, which was commissioning six contemporary novelists to rewrite the six Jane Austens so that was Curtis Sittenfeld, Val McDermid, 
Joanna Trollope, and then they did, um, after I left, they did um, Alexander McCall Smith. Um, that was an idea that would be played out very interestingly and differently depending on the imprint in which you'd done it. Um, but it was a really interesting exercise for them. The Cushion part is brilliant, and actually so is the Bell McDermott. Um, Joanna Trollope was the first and hardest in lots of ways, I would say, but none of them worked on its own terms. But the terms were disputed, as you would expect. Mm. Anyway, so that was Collins. And then I got approached by Canongate, and I really missed being independent. And I was uh, on maternity leave with my second child. And yeah, they, they taught me into it. And I went there, had a great time, published some really interesting books, including Ayabami Adebayo, which was the Bailey's mm. shortlisted novel. Lots of interesting things there. Just wonderful to be back at Independent. That's, I realise it's where my soul is. Can you talk to us a little about the difference um, between Independence and sort of the more commercial imprints? You know, both in terms of the industry, but also what it's like working for them and, and, and why you preferred one to the other? I can. I always feel nervous about this question because only because I recognise the value in both and they, mm. they make fabulous homes for different kinds of editors. Mm-hmm. I think I'd grown up in an independent um, and I'd like my publishing there and I liked working across all departments really, really closely um, and the flexibility. Um, so I think it's easier to publish eclectically in a smaller independent house not having imprints makes a big difference in terms of how your publishing is seen mm-hmm. um, and so that definitely suits my style but I came away with such respect for both um, the commercial divisions that I saw operate and I think actually it made me recognise that the secret to publishing brilliantly is just really respecting the genre in which you work, mm. whatever that is. It sounds like it's the obvious, but I think sometimes independent publishers can think they can think their way into things, um, and so they can, you can be great to be experimental. But if you don't have that real reverence and respect, yeah. you sometimes miss to what to you what might look like a micro difference, but to the reader is a really really important um, change. And can we talk a bit about the, the mechanics of editing? You know, yes. I thought that. Um, I saw Joanne Harris on Twitter this week. Did this. She does these sort of series of ten tweets, and was one about editors, which I thought was was really interesting. But you know, just as just as process, maybe using a, an example, you could talk through. You know, for someone who hasn't been edited at book length, what's the process like? How does it how does it work? How does it vary between individuals and things like that? It varies quite considerably. I'm a really hands-on editor, and I'm really happy to uh, work great deal with somebody i can give you two, two examples mm. useful mm-hmm. sure. okay one fiction one non so um uh with ayabami that's kind of a good example uh i recognized in that, that was a fabulous voice and a fantastic story but that the opening and the ending weren't were cooperating with what it was trying to do how did the manuscript come to you it came to me via um an agent mm-hmm. um almost all of what I publish particularly in fiction is via an agent. Mm-hmm. If it's non-fiction and it's an idea, I might go and seek somebody out, so they might not be agented, but tends to be with fiction. I mean, I get, this is something you should be Do you take in. unsolicited manuscripts? No, we don't. Um, we've talked about, I think, ways around thinking about that, but I get, I don't know, I've tried sort of between 400 and 600 novels a year, and it's all you can do to keep on top of that. I just don't, I physically don't know how we'd process it if we started... Um, that isn't to say that we, there aren't really interesting questions about how you diversify what you read and where it comes from. Sure. And that's a definite question. Um, in terms of the editing, what I would do is you get the book from the agent, mm-hmm. 
if there's something in it you think you want to work with, you approach them, assuming, let's say, that it's not part of a sort of hotly contested auction, which mm. some things are, but most things aren't, and it doesn't mean anything about the quality of the book. But assuming it's a book that's come, being uh, uh, created in the UK, so I'm not buying it from America from an editor who's already edited it, um, I then give the agent an idea of what I think the level of work that's involved is, um, and with a non-fiction example I was going to give you, this is a really beautiful memoir that we published a couple of months ago called Letter to Louis. Um, that is an extraordinary story and it is one woman's letter, one woman writing to her son who is um, significantly but not severely disabled. Her story was extraordinary, her writing was exquisite, but the book itself had a strand that wasn't working. So I phoned the agent and said, I absolutely love it, but we would want to change the title. It needs a different chapter structure. I'd probably be cutting about thirty to 40,000 words. And this was off manuscript, not off proposal? Manuscript. Right, okay. um, and this is why I think we need to do this, and this is where I think you'll end up, and this is why I think it's a good idea. You should go away and have a think about that, and if that's something that you mm. think will work for your vision for the book, then we should pursue it. And both author and agent actually were really pro when they understood what the reasoning was, and we did that work... Um, and we published the book, and it's got 46 five-star reviews on Amazon. There are no other reviews. They're all five-star reviews. Um, and amazing um, critical reception. It's been a complete joy. It's a really difficult subject. Lots of people don't want to read about mm-hmm. disability, so I don't necessarily know that it will pop, but the book itself stands on its own merits, and it was just about seeing what was already... It's a kind of... I think of it editorial as being absolutely like midwifery. You know, it's a process of helping someone deliver some, a mm. nascent baby. Um, and what does that look like sort of on a kind of um, relationship level? Like, do you tend to put things through the agent or are you sort of having a dialogue directly with the author? No, it's, it a, it's a really, especially if you're doing that level of work, it's a really hands-on relationship with the author. That's not a phrase I should use. It's not hands-on at all. I never <laughs> touch them. I know. Um, it's a really um, uh, integral. So I, I'm... I'm old-fashioned I work in pencil Mm. on the manuscript and I would write a letter Um, I've just done an edit recently it's probably about eight or nine pages taking them through thematically what I think we need to think about Mm -hmm. changing and why whether that's developing a character or changing an opening or cutting out a narrative tick and then they'd get numbered notes where anything a bit more detailed corresponds to a number on a document that can be anything from like 10 to 50 and then a markup, and they would get those three things as the first edit. So I'm really like hands on, and one of the amazing things about Faber is it gives us the time, mm-hmm. it allows editors the time to have that relationship. And I think you'll, I'd be really interested, but I'd imagine when you talk to other editors, they don't always necessarily feel like they have the time and space in order to mm. do that work. That's certainly something that comes up. And if this kind of major surgery would that only be happening after you've committed to publish the book, or could you be asking? Is there situations where you could be asking for someone to do? A lot of work without the certain commitment that you're going to take it on i wouldn't ask someone to do that level of work without the certain commitment of taking it on because none of you know what the outcome is necessarily going to be so what you're really asking them to do is to buy into your vision for the book if you're doing that you kind of need to be publishing it as well because otherwise i could take somebody down a really long road that some other editor feels is the wrong route and they've spent mm. ages and ages doing that work for someone else to say this isn't what i would have done so I'm kind of nervous about um, giving extensive feedback to somebody who you're not committed to. Um, I've in the past met people, but it doesn't tend to work simply because it feels implicitly like a commitment. And do other sort of different ways of, of that 
writers tend to handle that because we've heard a few things about very you know from publishers about very difficult authors or very easy authors is there uh, you know early on a sense that some people are just going to you know this is their baby to go back to the midwifery um uh yeah your 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 comment and just to go and just that they're going to be very precious about it and not want to um and, and they think it's perfect just the way it is so i there will always be authors who want different levels of editorial involvement. I get. I don't really subscribe to the idea that authors are actually necessarily difficult in the sense that part of an editor's role is to set up what the relationship is going to be. Mm. Like it, there shouldn't be surprises. I think that isn't to say things can't get tricky. That isn't to say you sometimes don't find yourself in a position where you don't agree. But in terms of part of what you should be doing at the setup for me, part of what I want to investigate as we begin to commission is do they ascribe to the vision for the book mm. and do they think that in general terms we're all pushing in the same direction yeah. if that's true there will be phases when things are difficult but difficult I think really the idea of a difficult author really is about when a publisher and an author and agent have at some point really not understood mm. quite a big difference about what you yeah. want to do and something when I do um, writing courses something I would always say to authors is when if you if you get to think about what relationship you have, actually you always do even if it's mm. just one um, publisher that approaches you. Try and make sure that whatever they're suggesting actually fits with your own idea for mm. what you think you're doing. Because I've known some really unhappy authors whose books have been gigantically successful who just don't recognise their own work in the final publication. You know they've been published in a more commercial way than they ever wanted mm. to be, or whatever. And and then that's when the trouble really comes yeah. if you think, gosh, well. The publisher feels they've done a fantastic job and the author's feeling thwarted because really you aren't seeing it in the same way. Mm -hmm. I had a conversation recently with an author I really had a lot of respect for. Um, published before, agent trying to find them a new home. This, the, I read the book, it just didn't feel right. And we'd been in touch and I said, I was really sorry, they're fantastic, but for whatever reason, this book just didn't sit right with me. And then I heard from them months later in connection to something else and they decided just to put it in a drawer because the only offer they'd had wanted to publish it in a way that felt really uncomfortable and they just thought okay something about this isn't doing what I want it to do it's incredibly hard to do but for them probably in the long mm -hmm. term that's better than just thinking yeah. any deal and I know it's easy to say because actually it's incredibly hard to get a deal mm. but it, once it's done there's no going back I think one my experience with, with editing from journalism into book writing was that yeah, if you can set it up as a collaborative relationship where you're both working to the mm -hmm. same objective then it's not only so much less stressful but it's actually quite a magical and quite a wonderful thing and yeah. that, you know and it's also a necessary thing I think yeah. I found that you need you need an editor and it needs to be born out of a out of a dialogue but what I found interesting moving from journalism to to book writing is you know I suddenly like they were asking about the cover and I was like do I have a say in that you know do I you know or the, even like the title you know like this whole set of stuff which even with a big magazine piece you, just, you don't have any power yeah. at mm. all but at the same time Certainly, if you're, if you're, my experience, you're writing for American magazines, like it's going to go through four drafts, and like mm -hmm. there's going to be a real serious back and forth. And I kind of expected that with a book as well. So if it's certainly with, with my magazine work, like the first draft, just the starting point in the conversation. Now there's no pretense; it's finished at all. And I think now, you know, my editor's kind of really born into that. But mm -hmm. it, you you do hear stories of sort of horror stories of books that barely get edited at all, mm -hmm. right? Is that I mean, is that a tiny factor of time that people just don't have the the yeah, the, time the time and space to do it? There has to be an element of that in some places. It also depends what the list itself is trying to do. Mm. 
Um, not every list is trying to publish every book in its own right. Sometimes you're publishing to a genre and what you're saying mm. is we publish this kind of work. And so you're actually trying to answer different questions. So does this book fit with the other books? Mm. Does it fill a gap on the list that we're trying to fill? Is that about who the author is or whether, I'm thinking, you know, talking about crime, for example, is it about we want a novel with a particular setting This does mm. that? To what degree are they, uh, are, is that editorial team um, of the view that their readers are really interested in that. I mean, I think they're, they're and I think it's a mistake to think they aren't, actually. Um, and I think there was a whole period where this exercise in sort of, you know, self-publishing plus, where books are published with minimum effort at a quote, low cost. We've moved away from completely because actually there's no such thing as a low investment. You know, if you're a super reader in the UK, by definition, I think as someone who reads six books a year, you know, mm. that's a lot of time actually of anyone's. And this, um, so it's a mistake to seem that that's not relevant. In terms of how it happens, it's a really hard question for me to answer. I think it depends what kinds of books you're drawn to and what you think you need to add. And some there are authors who'd want to be left alone. I, I, I had an author, um, I won an auction, and it was partly because quite often what happens in auctions is you'll be asked in real time for your editorial feedback, mm. which is horrific, not because you mind telling the author, <laughs> but because you have to tell all of your peers. <laughs> so you're not just telling... It's like being interviewed again for a job you've already got. You've got, you know, your boss or people sitting around listening to you give live feedback about a book they'd all like you to publish. So mm. that's interesting. Um, this particular person, like I was honest about the level of work. They'd been in other meetings where the editor said, it's just perfect, I wouldn't change anything that had made that author really uncomfortable because they were just like, I don't, I don't believe that's true. But presumably the editor just thought, I just want to get the book, I'm up against eight other people. Mm. If I'm enthusiastic, we yeah. can tackle this later. Or that it really did work. I, it's a really difficult one to answer. Time pressure, definitely. Space, definitely. And I think sometimes um, an assumption that I was definitely educated editorially to believe a book is only as strong as its weakest part so you have to improve everything you have to drive everything to that level i think sometimes people get really carried away by, by what does work mm. and they think that the rest can be a bit fudged yeah. i think you think oh, it'll drag 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 the bad bits along with it or you know you hear people say well by the time they've got two thirds of the way through they've already mm. bought it and you're like well that's true <laughs> but, but they haven't yet written the review yeah. which the next person reads and yeah thinks, well yeah i think we the interesting thing for me about the time and space question is actually the reader's time and space, which is they have so little of it. You have to work so hard to justify that space in someone's life that you have to be utterly rigorous about mm. everything to get there. And then going back to sort of um, to your career and, and working at Faber, can you tell us a little bit more about where it sits in um, in the sort of the wider publishing um, market and, and what it does and, and you know what its list looks like if indeed it has a look. Faber is a kind of um, exciting and interesting and wonderful place to be. It's the preeminent independent publisher in the UK. That means that we aren't owned by a conglomerate, which is then, and we aren't part of a wider business. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's the the Elliot family and the Faber family are still very much involved in in the running of the business. Um, and it's a it's a really it's a revered list that publishes across an incredibly wide range of uh, publishing, both in terms of its literary content and in terms of the actual types of things. So its poetry list is really famous, starting with T.S. Eliot, but including, you know, Hughes, Ted Hughes, Sylvia Plath, um, 
Caroline Duffy, um, I'm just Simon Armitage, um, um, Seamus Heaney. The list is extraordinary um, and continues to be a very live part of the offering. The poetry list here is um, central to what we do. Um, there is also uh, the Faber Plays. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I think the thing about Faber, and I just for me, is that it is one of the places where the, the colophon, the FF, does still mean something mm. to readers. It's recognisable if you consider yourself to be interested in publishing. It's probably in a colophon that you'll recognise. And that's in part because probably you've been at some level studied poetry or plays or novelists like Ishiguro or Peter Carey or um, Golding or um, Ted Hughes' Iron Man. At some point in your educational life, we've appeared in a way that's sort of special and rare um but we also have a really exciting and active crime list and we published across an incredibly broad range of books last year one of our biggest books was this incredible um uh book called the secret life of cows (laughs) which was just utterly sincere baffling brilliant you know um it was a book that um alan bennett had talked about in his memoirs got picked up by a sales rep in a shop who overheard it. Then our editor, Laura, dug it up from a farming press from 1983. And it's just it's just a strange, weird, alchemical thing, um, that, uh, this little book. And it has been wonderful. And so we continue to sort of just worry about publishing the best that we can, mm. regardless of the type of book, and not worry too much about what the outside world is doing, really. Is that a good... Does that give you enough of a sense? Yeah, not really. I, I suppose... Um... Tell me, I feel um, like. No, it was a good answer. I suppose I'm, what I've got going around the back of my head is what um, what successful book publishing looks like in terms of figures, because we've talked a little bit, we've mentioned in this interview, like commercial versus, right. say, for example, that the book that you mentioned earlier, um, The Letter to Louis. Mm. You know, obviously they've got, they'll have very different goals for success. Is yes. that something that you have to have in mind when you're buying a book, and how do you carry that through, um, you know, the, the list that you work on? It is something you have to have in mind and you have to understand that some books are about um, how they might work in a really big way. So The um, Secret Life of Cows, which is a kind of perfect little Christmas mm. alternative stocking filler as well as a brilliant guide on looking after chickens, not that everyone needs one of those, um, has sold over 100,000 mm. hardbacks. So that's a significant, you know, I'm pretty sure it was on the bestseller list uh, work. And we were clear from the outset that it could do both of those things, that it could be this mm. Christmas engine as well as a kind of quirky offering. That doesn't mean you know it will happen, but you can set things up well enough to believe that it will. Yeah. Um, in terms of my list, I look after um, writers who we expect to sell in really big numbers. So that is Barbara Kingsolver and Louise Doughty, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've just uh, commissioned a really exciting book that we have really high hopes for called The Good Enough Mother, which we'll publish next spring, which is very much in a kind of Louise Doughty, sort of grown up, elegant, but literary thriller, um, a psychological thriller actually about the idea the, the author and the protagonist are therapists so it's actually about the psychodrama is internal to the mm. therapist um, but it's got a potentially huge reach Lullaby would be a really good example mm. which is a book that we published in January that Mitzi published which is really interesting it won the pre-goncourt it's a literary novel but it's also a book about an unreliable narrator nanny incredibly popular subject matter so that does both of those things and what we work really hard at is to, ba- to balance sort of the quality that we think we can reach a really wide audience with mm. and the prize winning authors that we have absolute faith in that could if they win a prize really take off but might be much harder 
because for whatever reason they're less directly accessible to people perhaps it's um how they're constructed or what we think about what they're trying to do that is less direct Mm -hmm. it's very hard to describe well so i have a two-part question the first is for for poorly informed listeners and indeed myself who didn't know what it was can you explain what a colophon is (laughs) sorry um it's the branding branding of the publisher okay okay um so for us it's do you mean how do you spell it? Yeah. There's a spelling bee. C O L O P H O N. Okay. Colophon. Okay. Pretty sure that's right. Okay. <laughs> Sounds convincing. <laughs> um, and for different, you know, so for Chateau, it's a, it's a face, I think, yeah. in a roundel. Um, I think it's so true, though, because I, I think we talked about this before, but, you know, until we got book deals, I didn't really know what imprint was. You know, you're, you're just you're just outside all of that. Um, but like working in a magazine, you really worry about the different sections. Then you realise that everyone who, who's who's reading the magazine haven't even noticed that it's divided into sections before. I think it's something really specific to the history of publishing as well, mm. which was that up until ten or fifteen years ago, publishers direct directed their content at customers, as in booksellers, so mm. other professionals in the industry, and you know, work quite hard actually to keep everybody else out. It used to be impossible to find an email for, mm. um, and especially say an editor at HarperCollins or Random House seven or eight years ago. And then as the industry realized it had to become consumer facing and speak directly to readers, it's had to sort of turn the super tanker around really in terms mm. of who it's speaking to and in what way. And so colophons are as much about, I think, you know, obviously the heritage is independent and Faber, that's still true for us, and which is mm. I think why it's still meaningful. But those little independents get swallowed up by conglomerates, and it's about how you offer different lists, yeah. So you can cover off the same kind of publishing in different ways, mm. but that's not about readers because they they wouldn't see. They're it. not totally Sorry, interested. I, I no, not at all. Sorry. So we always we always try and ask about money on the podcast in, mm-hmm. in every context. And so, as a an independent, how the kind of advances that you're able to pay for books and so forth, how do they compare to to elsewhere to other say commercial publishers? <sighs> Um, and I suppose the, sorry, the, the third, the second part of the, the third part of the two part question would be, um, so with, uh, <laughs> so, so, so with, um, with the poetry, so mm. like, does that make any money or is that a sort of loss, loss leader for the rest of the firm? It's, it's not that simple. So poetry okay. is commissioned on a totally different model. Um, not least because, um, actually with poetry, it's much more about authority and quotation rights. It's about how the words are reused as opposed Mm. to necessarily how many of the specific collection that you sell. You'll know poems and you'll see them in all kinds of places without having ever even known what the collection they were printed in was called. So that's sort of not, I can't really give you a useful benchmark for that. That is to say you don't, you know, the the numbers aren't huge because by definition, um, poetry, you can't expect that you'll be able to sell a poetry collection in the way that you can sell a literary commercial, a novel that might win the Costa. Um, how do we compare? Um, it's really interesting. We are definitely competitive, so we can uh, play and take part in auctions with the conglomerates at the most commercial level, and sometimes we win them. That doesn't mean we always are the most have the most amount of money on the table, and it's all about how you ascribe value, mm-hmm. and that comes back to the editing, the quality of what we do, the number of books on the list, the amount of people that work on each publication. So that becomes an individual decision for an author. Um, when there is a level when things go absolutely bananas, um, you know, when you're looking at things. Um, in the multiple six figures up to seven figures which some American houses do where that's not a sensible decision for us to make because we can't amortise our risk Mm. with 
a guaranteed Simon Scarrow or a Bernard, you know, we aren't part of a business that offsets that risk mm. in a much broader base. So then there are definitely points at which we just think that's, that we're not interested that, in that model. Yeah. Um, but even in that circumstance, we sometimes, you know, agents are amazing and they understand what we do and the difference. And we'll just say, we're going to, this is the, this is the most that we can offer that author. Let, let us remain part of that conversation if that's what they decide they want to do they have all the information about whether that's a value to them or whether they, it's just about genuine you know the gaps can get really big um and surprising things happen all the time um so sometimes authors feel like they want to go with us just because that's what they want and i think that's really amazing is to know that um sometimes authors want to be favor authors but you can only know that yourself if that's a thing that actually mm. means anything. And presumably a lot of that is to do with the one-on-one relationship with the editor that they meet from, um, you know, from Faber. It's a part of that, definitely, but it is a part of the heritage. Mm. I mean, you know, when, um, uh, when I got offered the job um, a couple of years ago and I rang my dad, um, who is an academic, not in, not in um, publishing, he's a scientist, and he just said, oh, do you think you're going to be good enough? And I was like, well, we'll find out. Um, so supportive. But he sort of, but it was that weird reverence thing. He just mm. was like, hang on. And I think that 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 sense to some people, and not to everybody, rightly not to everybody, but to some people, it has genuine. It, it's it's a it's a sort of hall of fame, or it's a mm. sort of it's an associative relationship, and to be on the shelves with the same. Um, publisher and with the ff and interestingly that colophon thing which obviously i didn't know i was obsessed with but i am we put on the front of our books mm. most publishers don't do that you'll see it on everything in a way that's about us really not only just believing in the brand but believing that it has something it is a statement of intent um and so there are some authors for who that's for whom that's real this is not a question um, with a, a right or wrong answer, and I, I know I, I preface this because we ask a lot of people and their faces just drop. <laughs> um, obviously, oh, you've um, been in the industry now for you know ten, you know a decade, and we've spoken to a lot of people about where they think it's going, how it's changing, and how it's changed specifically over this period. And we've had some really interesting answers, both about what's happening. Um, and what's happened, but also what they think is going to happen. And we wondered if you could sort of put your, you know, crystal ball hat on and and sort of talk about the industry and the changes and, and what, you know, where it might be headed. Okay, sure. So um, really more about where we're going, not so much about where, we, well, uh, uh, where I suppose, we're at. Um, where you think we've come from will inform where you might think we're going. I know a lot of people have sort of thought about, you know, where what happened with the huge fuss for example about the ebook and um right and and, and also with the buying up of smaller imprints mm. um so and and that has really shaped where they think that publishing is, is going particularly in the uk so i think that that go it's really interesting in terms of that i go right back to what we were chatting about earlier on which is that publishing has got much better at understanding what it does well and so it got completely distracted by the idea of itself as a manufacturer mm. but the format in which we produce our books is not the most interesting thing that publishers do it's not whether it's electronic or physical mm. and that was the that was also part of that fashion for seeing if you could make a lot of books inexpensively it's like the there are no economies of scale and mm. just thinking that we can make things isn't what we do really well i think publishers you know there's a brilliant bookseller um called Sheila O'Reilly who used to say when somebody came into her book and asked if they could self-publish 
one of the reasons that she would say she wouldn't stock the book is she's like every title here has about 40 people's investment in it they bothered to think about how it's the best it can be why it deserves publishing over other things what the description on the back is you know, there's mm. a collective endeavor above and beyond the author that has value and really you know editorially it's about the fact that i read hundreds of books a year so that people don't have to so they can mm-hmm. just and so i think that sense of curate you know the very fashionable word curation that sense of why do something over something else is perhaps now more of a focus than it was at the time at which format was obsessing people mm-hmm. but that was also brilliantly sort of y2k like this like self-immolating um end of the world sort of you know we're all doomed except we're not because mm. no technology has ever ev- eviscerated the technology before it you know cinema wasn't worked out by tv etc so i think that was just a bit of panic um where we are and where we're going um in terms of imprints and little ones little publishers getting swallowed up for me that feels like a slight red herring because um there's a, there's a fairy story about either a massive auction or a tiny house picking up a little book that then gets discovered. Mm. The honest truth is it's really hard to make most books work mm. and most authors don't get killer advances that change their lives. They work incredibly hard for a relatively modest, low thousands, sometimes 1,000 print run, particularly with fiction. You know, it can be in the, with the first outing, the hardback, and ever, back, and everyone's working really, really hard to make it happen. So for me, the... There were, that that range is really important. The the bigger question that it leads to really is about uh, what diversity really means mm. and what multiplicity of voices. And then that publishing, like I think most of the media, has to be really honest about it, what how what liberalism really is because it's not just an intention. Um, and I think that's something that happens a lot in relation to publishing and diversity is that we think interestingly about writers from all over the world but we don't think in relation to class we're not very good at understanding what other countries own internal struggles are with ideas about prevailing culture um, and in our own more commercial fiction really understanding what, what diversity represents in terms of where else is coming from not just um, in terms of ethnicity but also um, class and position. Can you tell us about um, some of the particular authors you've worked with? The ones that, that we pulled up were Jay-Z. Um, <laughs> yeah, um, I really want to know about that. <laughs> and, and Barbara Kingsolver and Margaret Drabble. So what golden thread connects those three people? No. Um, perhaps Jay-Z, first of all. Um, what, can I, what, what was... Just tell us everything about Jay-Z. Everything. I can't tell you a lot because um, it's a long time ago now and things have changed. But it was amazing. So Where it was, was when that? I was at Random House. Okay. And... Uh, the American sister company had bought his book and uh, we had the opportunity at Virgin to publish it. And I think other people at that point weren't so keen precisely because of some default assumptions about ideas about people and what they do. Mm. So other publishers had got into really hot water trying to publish um, significant music artists and them not understanding the industry. But what the only... Who not understanding who? The musicians? The publishers, the publishers, both. And then just thinking, you know, you spend lots of money to buy a name and then how do you make a book if they don't understand what you need? People had their fingers burnt. But the one thing that you need to know about Jay-Z and the thing that made all the difference to me when and it was an astonishing book and he was amazing was that when his third album, when he got paid for his third album by the music company, do you know what he did with that money? He bought the rights to albums one and two because he was his own, he always thought like a producer. So he was one of those musicians who was able to think about his own output as a cultural product. So he, the book is an extraordinary self-aware 
uh, incredibly like literary curated piece of publishing. Um, I lived vicariously through the American editor who would go and sit on a sofa with Daisy and Beyonce under a little like knitted rug in like downtown New York and look at amazing artwork and pick it. But he was, they had misunderstood. I think a lot of people misunderstood mm. what working with him on a book would be like and the results were but he wrote it himself he wrote it with yeah because it's it's very heavily based on the lyrics it's not a traditional memoir it's really him weirdly him and the Stephen Sondheim book are quite similar they use Mm. lyrics as a way into understanding where they are at that point in the world and what they're doing Um, it's an incredibly sophisticated bit of publishing Um, really really beautiful book and I still remember the conversation when um, we had because still about difficult authors Mm. where his manager phoned and said yeah it's going brilliantly he doesn't want his name on the front and it was like <laughs> so then I think I think we said what we'd do was a belly band so that it wouldn't interfere with the mm. artwork that you could take off if you wanted to once you bought it but that for booksellers they didn't have this amazing I remember once there was a, a huge drama about I think it was a Kylie book that somebody paid a fortune for and then in the artwork she was unrecognisable because it was one of those beautiful photographs mm. she looked exquisite but you would have walked past it and just not had any idea you know who it was just um <laughs> So that was amazing, and uh, the book was great. But it was about uh, he he had such a clear idea, and his agent they had this. They did we did this amazing treasure hunt where pages were put up all over the world, and when enough people unlocked a certain page, another page would go up online. It was there were lots of really cool. Mm. Have you worked with ghostwriters before for for other books? Yes. What's that? Although he didn't like? have yeah he didn't necessarily have a ghostwriter. Mm. Um, what's the process like? Yeah. Uh, How does that relationship work? Sort of inserting a whole other person. The entirely depends on the person you're dealing with and whether they are going to be honest about the fact that, that person exists because some people pretend they don't and then they start to believe they've written their own book and that gets really tricky mm. um, what happens then? usually have a very awkward conversation about <laughs> book two because um, oh, they think they can write the second one they're just like this is, ama- look, this is amazing I mean I know I talked to that person but they just wrote down what I said <laughs> uh, to a degree um <laughs> So, yeah, that sort of depends on the shape mm. of the temperament of the person that you're buying the book from. And I think with that, if you're if you're going to be doing that kind of very um, name-led kind of book, the thing with Jay-Z is you have to know the shape of the ego of the talent, the quote talent, or the people around them, and know that somebody understands what you're talking mm. about. Because if nobody understands what you're talking about... You can't have a meaningful relationship and you're not going to be able to... You just all end up quite frustrated. Mm. Yeah. Um, and it doesn't have to be the celebrity themselves if they if they know that they've got a person who they trust who will listen to them. He's like, you leave us to yay. And that very regularly is the case. Mm. And with, um, I suppose, another kind of celebrity dealing with you know really famous mm. literary authors, so Margaret Drabble or Barbara Kingsolver, mm. what's, that, what's that like? It's really... It's t- a bit terrifying the first time definitely um but actually do you sort of inherit them have they been edited by other people and then so no it's uh well so with barbara yes Mm. i came um and um actively wanted to work with her and thought i had some interesting ideas about things we could think about in the future um and the first meeting was really scary but um it's it's always this uh, fundamentally if you have really understood what somebody is trying to do and you have something intelligent to say about how they re- how that is scaled up so successfully publishing a book is understanding what it's trying to do and magnifying that noise making people in-house so it, the clearer your vision and the more people share it the easier it is to publish something in a big way if everybody thinks something's a slightly different thing it's much harder so as an editor with something like that 
it's reading the book and then being able to communicate in house everybody what it's trying to do, where it sits, who you think it's for, and then consistently doing that in terms of how you write the copy, what the cover's like, mm. um, and that she understands and buys into you understanding what she's done. Yeah. But they're also going it. Margaret Drabble was a much, much more interesting question because um, at the point at which I started working with her, she wasn't, um, at, it wasn't her heyday, but it should have been. She should never, it, you know, it felt to me like um, totally unconscious sexism that somebody who is in the company really of the McEwans and um, Amos's of this world um, isn't published with that instant assertion of her stature. One of the things you can notice with um, uh, the female contemporaries of some of those authors is that publishing of some of those and this is not now this was but this was true even sort of seven or eight years ago that if you looked at the history of their publishing and this is true of Mavis Cheek, Muriel Spark, Margaret Drabble um it would tell you more about the history of publishing and fashions and covers than it would about their books because there was something about how they were unconsciously perceived that didn't see them first mm. it wasn't the new Drabble it was the Peppered Moth or whatever and how that fitted so the thing that really excited me about Margaret Drabble, who I was, I tried to buy her at HarperCollins, I was the underbidder, and then when I went to Canongate, I inherited her, but we'd already had a relationship because I tried to buy the book, um, was just about, it was the best problem to solve. She's an mm. exquisite writer with a real fan base who the literary was interested in, and publishing's just slightly overlooked. And that's been entirely borne out, you know, so her, she's, you know, also she hadn't written for a long time, it was, there'd been a big gap, and she said she wouldn't write again, so there are good reasons for that. Um, um, but equally with her, um, I've got to know her really well. And I was really excited about working with her. And I think in my first email, I think I did call her Maggie. And then I think she replied when she signed off, regards Margaret. And I was like, yeah, no, I haven't, I haven't, haven't qualified for Maggie yet. I have now. I've got my Maggie badge. But I, yeah, I felt really stupid for having assumed that intimacy. Um, a couple of final questions we should wrap up just of time. Um, with everyone we talk to in the sort of fiction world, this sort of division between planning, planning and plunging has come up. So people who plan You're their novels. You're obsessed with this question. I'm really obsessed with this question. <laughs> I have never. Um, I like uh, it. So, so, so the, the idea is you're either a planner who you know covers your wall with a sort of right. schematic. Um, and that is Simon. Okay. No, I, I don't think I am. <laughs> He's no. got a blackboard in his office. White He's definitely board. a planner. <laughs> so. Um, <laughs> Just slightly humiliated. Um, or no, you're a plunger. Nothing wrong with rigor. Or you're a plunger, in which case you you dive in and sort of follow your subconscious. And the the second part of this is is, is writing courses. That whole thing, you know, where do you stand on them? I suppose. So if we do the if we do the first thing, plan or plunge. It's a one word answer. That's all you have to say. I don't. I really do. I plan or plunge, or do I? What do I like in Malthus? What's yeah, the? What do you advocate? I'm going to be irritating. I'm going to go a third way. I advocate mulching. I think Ooh, allowing. Mulching. Things, yeah, I'm a big fan of mulching. Like, What's yeah, that? Uncon- like uh, sort of like you know, um, like intellectual compost. Like let something just Ooh. things develop well if you give them a bit of time to be ignored and they just fester and you just. I think um, a la- not in both ways, whether it's being really conscious of what you're doing or being or sort of immediately trying to invoke something, you're putting a lot of pressure on yourself. Mm. And actually, sometimes the thing you think when you're not trying to have an idea mm. is actually your unconscious really helping you out. So well, maybe most plungers are like secret, unknown mulches. I think planners mulch too, though. I think that's, you know, but I think time, time is a friend, whether, you know, whether you then sit down and write really quickly, mm. give yourself a chance to let something just brew, mulch, mm. fester. That's a lot such a good <laughs> Fester is <laughs> <laughs> 
negative negative emotions are not to be underestimated when it comes to writing mm. getting something out of your head because you can't live with it anymore is a legitimate reason for writing a book that like you get to a point where it just you're compelled it has to stop mm. and that's that's you know um to go back to the midwifery analogy in the second stage of, like there's supposed to be a recognized point at the end of the first stage of labor where you're like i just can't do this anymore and your body's ready for the next bit I sort of think there's also a point when you're working where you think I can't think about this book anymore or I can't have another conversation yeah. about that sentence that's just critical mass that's that's a natural yeah you're yeah, over you it need, you've got to and, and you need that to let go of it otherwise mm. every time someone writes a review you want to write to them and explain to them how they didn't understand yeah. the thing that you would like, that, that letting go mm. and the final link we've got only Sorry. like a minute yes. or so left is, is writing courses for or against I don't see how you. I, yeah, I'm, I'm, I would be for. I, I don't see how anybody wanting to spend time thinking about what they're doing is a bad thing. I think sometimes they can promise more than they can deliver. Mm. Sure. Definitely. But. Yeah. We hope you enjoyed that. Simon, what's the big news for you this week? Uh, well, the big news for both of us is the progress of our crowdfunding campaign, which is now approaching 70% completion to Ooh. our first goal. Uh, and what we, happens at our first goal? Uh, we get to pay our producers. Very exciting. Um, so if you do feel like supporting us, go to patreon.com slash always take notes. And if you contribute, you receive uh, very exciting rewards. Um, otherwise, I've been working on my book uh, like a proverbial galley slave and also have my piece on the Belgian football team published, which was exciting. Cassie, what about you? I have been mostly um, looking at cover designs for um, The Golden Thread, which will be published in October in the UK, and also looking at the um, paperback designs for The Secret Lives of Colour, which is coming out in September. And then tomorrow I'm being whisked off to um, Paris uh, to do an interview, and I will be taking the first train out at 5.40 in the morning, and then coming straight back after the interview at 2 o'clock in the afternoon. (laughs) So I'm really looking forward to uh, visiting Paris for four hours the glamour anyway this has been always take notes hosted as ever by me simon akum and me cassie sinclair our producers are olivia krellin ed kiernan and liz davies uh, zara hankier looks after social media james edgar looks after our graphic design and jess danheiser uh, very kindly produced our music uh, we're on all manner of social media you can find us on facebook and instagram at always take notes we're on twitter at take notes always and our patreon page for crowdfunding is patreon.com slash always take notes and as ever do please visit our itunes um, page in order to give us a review it really helps other people um, to find always take notes which of course is a great help thank you thank you <laughs>